0: Part two of Chapter 14 of the Story of the Atlantic Telegraph. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Story of the Atlantic Telegraph by Henry M. Field. Chapter 14: The Expedition of 1865, Part Two. Seeing the work thus well under way, with no chance of another disastrous check. Mr. Field left England with heart at rest, and returned to America for the winter. But the first days of spring saw him again on the Atlantic. He reached England on the 18th of March. His visit was more satisfactory than a year before. The work was now well advanced. It was a goodly sight to go down to Morden Wharf at Greenwich, and see the huge machinery in motion. Spinning off the leagues of deep sea line, the triumph apparently was near at hand. It seemed indeed a predestined thing that the cable should finally be laid in the year of grace, 1865 the end for which he had so faithfully toiled since 1858, seven weary years, as long as Jacob served for Rachel. But, less fortunate than Jacob, he was doomed to one more disappointment. At present, however, all looked well, and he could not but regard the prospect with satisfaction. Having no more drudgery of raising money, he had now a few weeks' leisure to take a voyage up the Mediterranean. The canal across the Isthmus of Suez, which had been so long in progress, under the supervision of French engineers, was at length so far advanced that the waters of the Mediterranean were about to mingle with those of the Red Sea, and delegates were invited to be present from all parts of the world. An invitation had been sent to the Chamber of Commerce in New York, and Mr. Field, then starting for Europe, was appointed as its representative. The visit was one of extraordinary interest. The occasion brought together a number of eminent engineers from every country of Europe, in company with whom this stranger from the new world visited the most ancient of kingdoms to see the spirit of modern enterprise invading the land of the pyramids he returned to england about the first of may to find the work nearly completed the cable was almost done and a large part of it was already coiled on board the ship this was an operation of much interest which deserves to be described the manufacture had begun on the first of september and had gone on for eight months without ceasing the works turning out fourteen miles a day even during the short days of winter. As the spring advanced and the days grew longer, the amount was, of course, much increased. But By the last of January they had already accumulated about 900 miles of completed cable, when began the long and tedious work of transferring it to the Great Eastern. It was thus slow, because it could not be made directly from the yard to the ship. The depth of water at Greenwich was not such as to allow the Great Eastern to be brought up alongside the wharf. She was lying at Sheerness, thirty miles below, and the cable had to be put on board of lighters, and taken down to where she lay in the stream. For this purpose the Admiralty had furnished to the company two old hulks, the iris and the amethyst, which took their loads in turn. When the former had taken on board some two hundred and fifty tons of cable, she was towed down to the side of the Great Eastern, and the other took her place. This was an operation which could not be done with speed. With all the men who could be employed, they coiled on board about only two miles an hour, or twenty miles a day at which rate it would take some five months. The work began on the 19th of January, early in the morning, and continued till June, before all was safely stowed on board. The Great Eastern herself had been fitted up to receive her enormous burden. It was an object to stow the cable in as few coils as possible, yet it could not be all piled in one mass. Such a dead weight in the center of the ship would cause her to roll fearfully. If coiled in one circle, it was computed that it would nearly fill Astley's Theater from the floor of the circus to the roof. Making a pile fifty-eight feet wide and sixty feet high, to distribute this enormous bulk and weight, it was disposed in three tanks, one aft, one amidships, and one forward. The latter, for the shape of the ship, was a little smaller than the others and held only six hundred and thirty three miles of cable while the two former held a little over eight hundred each, all were made of thick wrought-iron plates and watertight so that the cable could be kept under water till it was immersed in the sea thus with her spacious chambers prepared for the reception of her guest the great eastern opened her doors to take in the atlantic cable and long as it was and wide and high the space it filled it found ample verge and room within her capacious sides indeed it was the wonder of all who beheld it how like a monster of the sea she devoured all that other ships could bring the iris and the amethyst came up time after time and disgorged their iron contents yet this leviathan swallowed shipload after shipload as if she could never be satisfied a writer who visited her when the cable was nearly all on board was at a loss to find it he looked along the deck from stem to stern but not a sign of it appeared how he searched and how the wonder grew he tells in a published letter after describing his approach to the ship and climbing up her sides and his survey of her deck he proceeds but it is time that we should look after what we have mainly come to see-the telegraph cable To our intense astonishment we behold it nowhere, although informed that there are nearly two hundred thousand miles of it already on board, and the remaining piece, a piece long enough to stretch from Land's End to John O'Groats, is in course of shipment. We walk up and down on the deck of the Great Eastern without seeing this gigantic chain which is to bind together the old and the new world, and it is only on having the place pointed out to us that we find where the cable lies and by what process it is taken on board on the side opposite to where we landed deep below the deck of our giant there is moored a vessel surmounted by a timber structure resembling a house and from this vessel the wonderful telegraph cable is drawn silently into the immense womb of the great eastern the work is done so quietly and noiselessly by means of a small steam engine that we can scarcely notice it indeed were it not pointed out to us we would never think that that little iron cord about an inch in diameter which is sliding over a few rollers and through a wooden table is a thing of world-wide fame a thing which may influence the life of whole nations nay which may affect the march of civilization following the direction in which the iron rope goes we now come to the most marvellous sight yet seen on board the great eastern We find ourselves in a little wooden cabin, and look down, over a railing at the side, into an immense cavern below. This cavern is one of the three tanks in which the 2,000-mile cable is finding a temporary home. The passive agent of electricity comes creeping in here in a beautiful, silent manner, and is deposited in spiral coils, layer upon layer. It is almost dark at the immense depth below, and we can only dimly discern the human figures through whose hands the coil passes to its bed suddenly however the men begin sinning they intone a low plaintive song of the sea something like kingley's three fishes went sailing away to the west away to the west as the sun went down the sounds of which rise up from the dark deep cavern with startling effect and produce an indescribable impression we proceed on but the song of the sailors who are taking charge of the atlantic telegraph cable is haunting us like a dream in vain our guide conducts us all over the big ship through miles of galleries passages staircases and promenades through gorgeous saloons full of mirrors marbles paintings and upholstery made regardless of expense and through buildings crowded with glittering steam apparatus of gigantic dimensions where the latent power of coal and water creates the force which propels this monster vessel over the seas in vain our attention is directed to all these sights. we do not admire them our imagination is used up the echo of the sailor's song in the womb of the Great Eastern will not be banished from our mind. It raises visions of the future of the mystic iron coil under our feet, how it will roll forth again from its marrow birth, how it will sink to the bottom of the Atlantic, or hang from mountain to mountain far below the stormy waves, and how two great nations, offsprings of one race and pioneers of civilization, will speak through this wonderful coil, annihilating distance and time, who can help dreaming here on the spot where we stand for it is truly a marvelous romance of civilization this great eastern and this atlantic telegraph cable even should our age produce nothing else it alone will be the triumph of our age as the work approached completion public interest revived in the stupendous undertaking and crowds of wonder seekers came down from london to see the preparations for the expedition Even if not admitted on board, they found a satisfaction in sailing round the ship, in whose mighty bosom was coiled this huge sea serpent. It had also many distinguished visitors. Among others, the Prince of Wales came to see the ocean girdle which was to link the British islands with his future dominions beyond the sea. At length, on the 29th of May, almost the last day of spring, the manufacture of the cable was finished. The machines, which for eight months had been in a constant whirl, made their last round. The tinkling of a bell announced that the machinery was empty, and the mighty work stood completed. It only remained that it should be got on board, and the ship prepared for her voyage. Hundreds of busy hands were at work, without ceasing, and yet it was six weeks before she was ready to put to sea. It may be well believed that it was no small affair to equip such an expedition. Beside the enormous burden of the cable itself, the Great Eastern had to take on board seven or eight thousand tons of coal, enough for a fleet to feed her fires. Then she carried about five hundred men, for whom she had to make provision during the weeks they might be at sea. The stores laid in were enough for a small army. Standing on the wheelhouse, and looking down, White might fancy himself in some large farmyard of England. There stood the motherly cow that was to give them milk, and a dozen oxen, and twenty pigs, and a hundred and twenty sheep, while whole flocks of ducks and geese, and fowls of every kind, cackled as in a poultry-yard, Beside all this livestock, hundreds of barrels of provisions, of meats and fruits, were stored in the well-stocked larder below. Thus laden for her voyage, the great eastern had in her a weight, including her own machinery, of twenty-one thousand tons, a burden almost as great as could have been carried by the whole fleet with which Nelson fought the Battle of Trafalgar. As the time of the departure drew near, public curiosity was excited, and there was an extraordinary desire to witness the approaching attempt, The company was besieged by applications from all quarters for permission to accompany the expedition. Had these requests been granted, on the scale last, even the large dimensions of the Great Eastern could hardly have been sufficient for the crowds on board. The demand was most pressing for places for newspaper correspondents. Those came not only from England, but from France and America. Almost every journal in London claimed the privilege of being represented. The result was what might have been expected As it was impossible to satisfy all, and to discriminate in favor of some, and exclude others, would seem partial and unjust, they were finally obliged to exclude all. Of course, they gave great offense. There was an outcry in England and in the United States at what was denounced as a selfish and suicidal policy. But it is doubtful whether any other possible course would have been given better satisfaction. Whether the managers erred in this or not, it should be said that they applied the same inexorable rule to themselves, even directors of the company being excluded, unless they had some special business on board. It should be borne in mind that the expedition was not under the control of the Atlantic Telegraph Company at all, but of the Telegraphic Construction and Maintenance Company, which had undertaken the work in fulfillment of a contract with the former company to manufacture and lay down a cable across the Atlantic, in which it assumed the whole responsibility, not only making the cable, but chartering the ship and appointing the officers and sending its own engineers to lay it down. Of course it had an enormous stake in the result, Hence it felt, not only authorized but bound, to organize the expedition solely with reference to success. It was not a voyage of pleasure, but for business, for the accomplishment of a great and most difficult undertaking. Hence it was right that the most strict rules should be adopted. Accordingly there was not a man on board who had not had some business there. As the voyage promised to be one of the most practical interest to electricians and engineers, several young men were received as assistants in the testing room or in the engineer's department but there was no person who was not in some way engaged on the business of one or the other company, or connected with the management of the ship. Except Mr. Field, not an Atlantic Telegraph Director, accompanied the expedition, and he represented also the Newfoundland Company. Mr. Gooch, MP, was at once a director of the Telegraph Construction and Maintenance Company, and chairman of the board that owed the Great Eastern, and so represented both those companies which had so great a stake in the result. Thus the whole business was in the hands of the Telegraph Construction and Maintenance Company. It had its own offices to man the expedition, the captain and crew to sail the ship, its engineers to lay the cable, and its electricians to test it. Even the eminent electricians, Professor Thompson and Mr. Varley, who are on board in the service of the Atlantic Telegraph Company, were not allowed to interfere, not even to give advice, unless it were asked for in writing, and then it was to be given in writing. Their office was only to test the cable when laid, to pass messages through it from Newfoundland to Ireland, and to report it complete. So rigorous were the rules which governed this memorable voyage. The whole enterprise was organized as completely as a naval expedition. Every man had his place, as when a ship is going into battle, everybody is sent below that has not some business on deck, so it is not strange that in such a critical enterprise they did not want a host of supernumeraries on board. Yet the company was not unmindful of the anxiety of the public for news, and since it could not give a place to many correspondents, engaged one, and that the best, W. H. Russell, L.L.D., the well-known correspondent of the London Times in the Crimea and in India. This brilliant writer was engaged to accompany the expedition, not to praise without discrimination, but to report events faithfully from day to day. He was accompanied by two artists, Mr. O'Neill and Mr. Dudley, to illustrate the scenes of the voyage. Thus the company made every provision to furnish information and even entertainment to the public. Several of these gentlemen afterward wrote accounts for different magazines, Blackwood, Cornhill, and Macmillan's. There are different reports, and especially the volume of Dr. Russell, which combines the accuracy and minuteness of a diary kept from day to day with brilliant descriptions, set off by illustrations from drawings of Mr. Dudley, furnished the public as full and complete an account as if there had been a special correspondent from every journal of England and America." but if the public at large were very probably excluded the organization on board was perfect and complete at the head was captain Edison, of whom we have already spoken as his duties would be manifold and increasing he had requested the aid of an assistant commander and captain moriarty r n who had been in the agamemnon in eighteen fifty eight was permitted by the admiralty to accompany the ship and to give the invaluable aid of his experience and skill the government also generally granted two ships of war the sphinx and the terrible to attend the great eastern thus the whole equipment of the expedition was english of the five hundred men on board the great eastern there was but one american and that was mr field the engineering department was under charge of mr now sir samuel canning who as the representative of the telegraph construction and maintenance company was chief in command of all matters relating to laying the cable for this responsible position no better man could have been chosen before the voyage was ended, he had ample opportunity to show his resources. He was ably seconded by Mr. Henry Clifford. Both these gentlemen had been on board the Agonennon in the two expeditions of 1858. They had since had large experience in laying submarine cables in the Mediterranean and other seas. It was chiefly by their united skill that the paying-out machinery had been brought to such perfection that throughout the voyage it worked without a single hitch or jar. They had an invaluable helper in Mr. John Temple the electrical department was under charge of mr de who had had long experience in submarine telegraphs and who was aided by an efficient corps of assistants professor thompson and mr varley as we have said were there to examine and report for the atlantic company all these gentlemen had been unceasing in their tests of the cable in every form both while in the process of manufacture and after it was coiled in the great eastern the result of their repeated tests was to demonstrate that the cable was many times more perfect than the contract required with such marvellous delicacy did they test the current of electricity sent through it that it was determined that one of thousand parts over nine hundred ninety-nine came out of the other end to complete this organization and equipment caused such delays as excited the impatience of all on board but at length when midsummer had fully come at noon of saturday july fifteenth the song of the sailors sounded the chant du Dupas, The Great Eastern was then lying at the Nore, and she seemed to cling to the English soil which she had griped with a huge trotman weighing seven tons, held fast by a chain whereof every link weighed seventy pounds. To wrench this ponderous anchor from its bed required the united strength of nearly two hundred men. At last the bottom let go its hold. The anchor swings to the bow, the gun is fired, and the voyage is begun. A fleet of yachts and boats raise their cheers as the mighty hull begins to move but mark how carefully she feels her way following the lead of yonder little steamer the porcupine the same faithful guide that seven years before led the niagara of trinity bay one night when the faint light of stars twinkled on all the surrounding hills slowly they near the sea now the cliffs of dover are in sight and bidding her escort adieu the great eastern glides along by the beautiful isle of wight and then quickening her speed with a royal sweep she moves down the channel Off Falmouth she picks up the Caroline, a small steamer, which had left several days before with the shore and on board. She was laboring heavily with her burden, and made little headway in the rough waves, but the Great Eastern took her in tow, and she followed like a ship's boat in the wake of the monarch of the seas. Thus they pass round to the coast of Ireland, to that Valentia Bay, where eight years before the Earl of Carlisle gave his benediction on the departure of the Niagara and the Agamemnon and where, a year later, the gallant English ship brought her end of the cable safely to the shore. The point of landing had been changed from Valentia Harbour, five or six miles, to Homerum Bay, a wild spot where huge cliffs hang over the waves that here came rolling in from the Atlantic. On the top, an old tower of the time of Cromwell tells of the bloody days of England's great civil war. It is now but a mossy ruin. Here the peasants who flocked in from the country pitched their booths on the green sward, and looked down from the dizzy heights on the boats dancing in the bay below. At the foot of the cliff a soft sandy beach forms a bed for the cable, and here, as it issues from the sea, it has led up a channel which had been cut for it in the rocks. As the shore end was very massive and wildy, it could not be laid except in good weather, and as the sea was now rough, the Great Eastern withdrew to Bantry Bay, to be out of the way of the storms which sometimes break the fury on this rock-bound coast. On Saturday, this preliminary work was completed. The heavy shore end was carried from the deck of the Caroline across a bridge of boats to the beach, and hauled up the cliffs amid the shouts of the people. Where once it was made fast to the rocks, the little steamer began to move, and the huge coils slowly unwound, and like a giant awaken stretched out its long iron arms. By half past ten o'clock at night the hold was empty, the whole twenty-seven miles having been safely laid, and the end buoyed in fathoms water a dispatch was at once sent across the country to bantry bay to the great eastern to come around with all speed and early the next morning her smoke was seen in the offing passing the harbor of valentia she proceeded to join the caroline which she reached about noon and at once commenced splicing the massive shore end to her own deep-sea line this was a work of several hours so that it was toward evening before all was completed thus so many had been the delays of the past week that it had come on to sunday before the great eastern was ready to begin her voyage this, which some might count as desecration of the holy day, the sailors rather accept it as a good omen. Had the shore end been laid forty-eight hours sooner, the voyage might have begun on Friday, which sailors, who are proverbially superstitious, would have thought an unlucky beginning. But Sunday, in their esteem, is a good day. They like, when a ship is moving out of sight of land, that the last sound from the shore should be the blessed Sabbath bells. If that sacred chime were not heard to-day, at least the Sabbath peace rested on sea and sky. It was a calm summer's evening. The sun was just sinking in the waves as the great eastern, with the two ships of war which waited on either hand to attend her royal progress, turned their faces to the west and caught the sudden glory. Says Russell, As the sun set, a broad stream of golden light was thrown across the smooth billows toward their bows, as if to indicate and illumine the path marked out by the hand of heaven. What a sacred omen! Had it been the fleet of Columbus sailing westward, every ship's company would have fallen upon their knees on those decks, and burst forth in an Ave Maria to the gentle mistress of the seas. But in that manly crew there was many an eye that took in the full beauty of the scene, and many a reverent heart that invoked a benediction. In other respects the day was well chosen. It was the 23rd of July. From the beginning Captain Anderson had wished to sail on the 23rd of June, or the 22nd of July, so as to have the full moon on the American coast. He desired also to take advantage of the westerly winds which prevail at that season, for in going against the wind the Great Eastern was steady as a rock. Every expectation was realized. To the big ship the ocean was an inland lake. The paying-out machinery, the product of so much study and skill, worked beautifully, and as the ship increased her speed, the cable glided into the water with such ease that it seemed but a holiday affair to carry it across to yonder continent. Such were the reflections of all that evening, as the long summer twilight lingered on the sea. At midnight they went to sleep, to dream of an easy triumph. Yet be not too confident, but a few hours had passed before the booming of a gun awoke all on board with the heavy tidings of disaster. The morning breaks early in those high latitudes, and by four o'clock all were on deck, with anxious looks inquiring for the cause of alarm. The ship was lying still, as if her voyage had already come to an end, and electricians with troubled countenances were passing in and out of the testing room which as it was always kept darkened looked like a sick chamber where some royal patient lay trembling between life and death end of part 2 of chapter 14 recorded by Alex C. Talander, www.bookbanter.net